expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Joining you again here with Carl, the sound guy. I know. <laughs> but today, to make up for Carl being here, because I, I can't do a show without Alpha Dog and Carl, we have Richard Teitelbaum with us, somebody who actually knows a thing or two about short sellers. Why? Because he actually wrote the book on it. He's a New York-based journalist and author specializing in the financial markets. He is also the author of The Most Dangerous Trade. Dun, 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 dun. He's currently a senior contributing writer for Institutional Investor Magazine. My favorite. (laughs) (laughs) His career includes stops at all the financial publications of note. He was an editor and contributor for corporate finance at the Wall Street Journal, My Old Job. Editor, director, institutional investor overseeing editorial operations and institutional investors sovereign wealth center, a web startup covering six trillion sovereign wealth industry. At Bloomberg News, where he had 23 cover stories, covered topics such as hedge funds, investment banks, and the financial crisis. At the New York Times, he was the investing editor for the Sunday business section. At Fortune Magazine, he was a columnist for most of the 90s. His signature investigative reports examined the TARP bailout, the disclosures of non-public information by the U.S. Treasury Department to market participants, and the New York Federal Reserve role in the AIG takeover. His book, The Most Dangerous Trade, How Short Sellers Uncover Fraud, Keep Markets Honest, Make and Lose Billions. On top of all of this, I should say, He's also a punk rocker. (laughs) A former punk rocker. Oh, really? I'll I'll interject here. Welcome to the show, Richard. But uh, you are going to have to tell, like, before we get into the most dangerous trade or any of that stuff, I want to hear about it. How how does a former punk rocker from the 80s and 90s become a foremost financial journalist? Well, I don't know about foremost financial journalist, but actually what, what got me involved was, I mean, full disclosure, my father was a journalist and a pretty successful one. But there is something that connects those things, which is if you're kind of rejecting things and you're skeptical about the world around you, in particular New York City in the late 70s, it gives you a little bit of a, I don't want to say cynical, but a skeptical attitude towards, you name it, government, business, culture, museums, rock music. And skepticism is a good, I, I'd say that it's a, it's a prerequisite for any kind of journalism that's worth reading or listening to, uh, you, you got to be there and say, hold it. Does this make sense? 
And what does this figure mean on the balance sheet? And why is it going down or why is it going up? You know, just asking those questions just along the lines of, why do we have Ronald Reagan as our president? Who is this crazy mayor that we have? Why are there uh, junkies camped out in front of my apartment in the East Village? So you're asking questions, and that's a good thing for a journalist, and certainly skepticism. Does that make sense? It, it does, and it makes sense as, as to why you're, I don't know if it's attracted is the right word to short sellers, but why you gravitated towards writing about them. They're skeptics in general. As far as, you know, junkies on your stoop, hey, you're a punk rocker. It comes with the territory. <laughs> They're going to junkies are going to be on your porch. There you go. I think it does in a way. It's kind of a rebelling against the system. Uh, do you find do you find yourself still kind of thinking that way in your writing and in the in the people you choose to write about? Someone much wiser than myself said that journalism is writing things that someone doesn't want you to read. I don't remember Carl saying that. <laughs> Everything else is just advertising. So, yeah, it does help. You know, I, I, I think writing the stuff that people don't want out there. Yeah. Is uh, that's a great incentive, and uh, that should be kind of the the, the lodestar for for journalists, and not to preach, but I think more journalists, as opposed to breaking just simple breaking news or social media tweeting and and kind of uh, opinions that aren't backed up. What took you to? Well, you know, I, I guess I should talk about my own personal experience with you because I don't even know if you know. But I, I remember there was this guy, and his name was Richard Teitelbaum. You might know him. Who, who called me in like 2014 and said, you know, I, you know, I hear you're kind of a short seller, geo-investing, whatever, you know, but what can you tell me about Carson Block? I'm writing a book about him. I believe this book, The Most Dangerous Trade or whatever, was your first incarnation to just write about Carson, then it became about something else? And he just became a chapter because he's just not interesting enough to be a book? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Uh, but actually, I wrote a story. My recollection is that I wrote a story about Carson and that that was folded into my book. And I at least talked to him, and he, he was the one that gave me the idea that, you know, you know I've, I'd read about Manuel Asensio. I'd read about Jim Chanos from some of the work of my colleagues at, uh, at Bloomberg and said, and I was itching for some unknown reason to write a book because I thought it would make people like me more or, you know, that I would become the film rights would be sold and I'd be able to retire. Uh -huh. And then, so, so after talking to Carson, I, um, I actually said, hold it. I, 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 let me open this up. And I never got a chapter of you in the book, um, but that's okay because very few people read it. So no, 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 I, I have a copy. I, I did read it. Carl actually asked me today. He's like, Hey, did you ever read? I was like, of course I read it. Look, I found it to be an interesting book because, number one, you know, certainly in 2014, there was, there was not a chapter to write about me. There still isn't. 
but I didn't know Carson very well back then either, so I wasn't very helpful to you. I think there's there was one quote in there from me to you that you included where I said this this China stuff is dangerous. Somebody somebody could get killed. At that point, Kuhn was arrested. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that was a pretty close thing for Kuhn. He's he's still not right, by the way, for anybody keeping score in the China hustle and the guy who spent two years in uh, their version of a gulag. And you, you did end up making it in a movie after all. So I think you, you, you did a star turn on the China hustle, right? <laughs> you, were, you were there. Yes, I, it was mercifully a very short point, but I, I do thank the producers and directors for including me. Oh, the hell with them. <laughs> I don't thank them for including me. And, and then I met you at a premiere in East Hampton, right? All of the people you interviewed for that book, who was the most interesting? Who was the least interesting? Give us a story. Give us something about the most dangerous trade that's going to that's gonna inform us while we're reading it, for, or for those who may read it for the first time. From what I could gather, the most interesting people were, uh, obviously, I, I was really interested in Carson Block. There was Manuel Asensio. Oh, who he's is, interesting. He's a character, and he's also in has over the years, over the decades, has been extraordinarily successful in identifying targets uh, and causing trouble, not least of which for himself. On the other side, I, I'd say, uh, oh, and I should say that Jim Chanos is. Uh, you know, I found his his business the most interesting, and I, I kind of view him as the the professor, the dean of short sellers, because his business model was quite successful and is just on uh, how he structures his firm and what he's been able to achieve. His also his his being able to codify short selling, the different types of short sales. And the less interesting people, I should say, when I use the word less interesting, it's like, hey, this person's almost normal, you know? It's very, so, you know, I don't want to put, but like Bill Fleckenstein out in in Seattle, just a totally well, it seemed to me, maybe I'll be proven wrong, well-adjusted man, Running a small amount of money, married to uh, his uh, not a college sweetheart, but you know the woman he met at his first job, and a lot of his 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 short selling was often based on valuation, which is uh, which worked really well in two thousand and two thousand and one and two thousand two. But not not so much now. Not so much now. Not too well. No, I think and maybe. I mean, you know this. I mean, have you begun to think that the metrics that we've grew up with, with Graham and Dodd, of uh, you know price to earning, price to book, that those are not necessarily the best metrics to to, to gauge valuation? Uh, I, I that may have been that may be a secular change. I, I do not know. Well, my opinion is they always were and always will be, whether, okay. whether it's important right now because everything is kind of viewed from like a biotech lens, right? You know, biotech's 
don't make money and they most will never make money and nobody really cared in that space. They're just unreasonable investors, right? They get very attached to their phase two or phase three trial. Well, now every stock is that way. I mean, nobody cares whether they Mm -hmm. make money, but at some point, rationality will come back to the market and making money will matter again. Back to as far as like when you're saying most interesting, least interesting, I, I would, one little bit of pushback is, you know, Carson's one of the least weird people I know. I mean, like he's a very profane and, you know, he, he's a pretty, for what you and I know about short sellers, like how freaking crazy they can be, mm-hmm. pretty sane. And, and Jim Chanos is actually the most normal guy I've ever met. Now, he might be super smart, and he is. But far, as far as grounded, down to earth, right, that doesn't kind of take you out there into outer space, like, you know, God bless you, maybe Manuel does. <laughs> Asensio, <laughs> who's, you know, very, very intelligent at finding fraud, as you had pointed out, but probably one of the foremost people I know at stepping on his own dick every year or two <laughs> and, and getting in trouble with FINRA or something else just because he, he can't control himself. A lot of short sellers are that way. And I would think that, yeah, Fleckenstein, sure. David Rocker, very normal guy, right? Uh, reasonable, re- reasonably so from what I could tell. Never met him in person, uh, talked to him on the phone. But Shad, I, I believe it was Shad Rowe. It may have been somebody else who, uh, he was a short or uh, was a short seller in Dallas, I believe. But he said that short sellers are people, it's not that you're born a short seller, but that your mom dropped you on your head as an, in, as an infant. <laughs> and that's why you're engaged in short selling. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough on a good day. <laughs> I, I don't think that people kind of realize that the negativity that it, it can breed, like you're always looking for what's wrong. And then it can start to, you know, take you outside of work where in your personal life, you're starting to always look for what's wrong. And there's always something wrong, but it's, it's just a much better headspace to be looking for something right, especially in your personal life. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it can be very tough that way. The damage that can be done psychically as you go through and, and everything you see is bad. It's thievery. It's people die, you know, just by lying. I think, but to your point, and I hate quoting Nietzsche because everybody recognizes the quote, but it was, is be careful when you go hunting, when you go hunting monsters, uh, that you don't become one. When you look into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. So so maybe tied to Nietzsche, interestingly, that you didn't mention him in the, the interesting or more exciting of the short sellers. I mean, your chapter on Ackman is the grandstander of the shorts, but he's not included in your little list here of who you thought was interesting. I, but before you answer that, Richard, I just want to point out, did you say Michi? Nietzsche. Okay. Nietzsche. I said Nietzsche. Oh, I, know, Nietzsche. I, know, I know Richard said Nietzsche. I just, I said I just Nietzsche. wondered if Carl thinks he's like, you know, some, some Italian aristocrat from the 1600s. Medici, <laughs> you mean? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Carl, are you an Italian aristocrat? Yeah. You can't got too far, huh? No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. I'm interested in that question. 
how, the Ackman, the grandstander of them all, I guess is how you put it. Well, yeah, he's he was the, he at the time. I, I wasn't going to include him, and I was wrapping up my reporting, and I think I was I wasn't in the air. I was I was in a car service back from the airport when I heard when he opened up his Herbalife campaign, and I said. And I was all excited to sit down and start writing it. And I said, oh, I have to go. Now I have another chapter to write. And uh, I will point out that Bill Ackman did not cooperate with me. I did not interview him. I have never, which I think I may be the only journalist in the Eastern Seaboard that he has not talked to. I think you might be. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it was fine. I, 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 I was, you know, there was enough in the public domain. And that was fine. And the results of the, the Herbalife campaign, which I'm kind of still, you know, I mean, that's a great tale of the dangers of short selling. Uh, and, right. And still losing a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a, a really, uh, I mean, and uh, the, the epitome of of a short squeeze and what happens when you're on the wrong side of that. Yeah. Yeah. I never talked to him. He does talk a lot, you know, if he want, which is, you know, God bless him, but you know, I did not talk. So I, I, I can't say, I, I can't so just uh, comment your request to, like you said, I'm writing a book. You're going to be a chapter in it. And he's just like, yeah, no, I'm not interested. Uh, yeah, no, I think the backstory, I read an article at the time that had just come out about by William Cohen in my recollection, uh, which uh, I guess you could perceive it as being negative. And I think he was fed up with journalists at that point and didn't, that was the reason. And I didn't turn back and ask him the way I did other, you know, kind of reconsider, you know, that kind of thing. I just said, I can do this. All right. Well, two things there. One, I guess you got him back with the title of the chapter, the activist grandstander. Love it. And two, you kind of just said, you circled back with some people who originally said no. Who said no that you had to like go back to and say, come on, talk to me? Uh, that was Jim Chanos, actually. Really? Uh, yeah. No. Everybody else, everybody else was just, come on down, fly out. Great. Yeah, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, well, listen, Ackman, to be fair, was probably busy battling it out with Icon, so, you know. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I didn't hold it against him. And well, no, no, well, that's, that's the lesson. And, and to, to be honest, I did not write the head for the chapter to get back at him. The fact is he was probably the most public and gathering the most attention. Yes, you did. <laughs> no. Now, Dan, you've had bad experiences with headlines that I didn't write. No, don't even get oh, me started. Don't jo e okay. Joey Countermanager. Just, just so that's not what he's talking about. Uh, that 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 was the first headline. I was short sellers earn their chicken wings or some shit like that from, and that was a Bloomberg one. Which oh, well, your favorite? I, which article? Yours is that? and everybody else's favorite place to work. Richard, for for the background, was. Uh, did a, a profile institutional investor on me when I was, when I had my lapse of judgment in 2018. And uh, the original title was Bourbon Swilling Short Seller Wants to Fuck Up Congress. And there's a problem with that? <laughs> I, was, I mean, the, I, my problem with it was 
that their justification for bourbon swilling was Richard and I went out for one drink after the, what was it? A police friend, uh, of, friend of the police yeah, uh, uh, event. And okay. I mean, is that swilling? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, remember we went back and forth oh, about this. Did. I, oh. I didn't write that headline. And I believe it was, I believe it was you changed. Contrarian candidate or something like that. You wanted, uh, I, I, I can't remember what, but, uh, but first of all, uh, you, you, you did have two drinks, and I remember oh, going no, back and forth. It was a double. <laughs> it was one glass. But that's still one glass. <laughs> Swilling just means imbibe. We went back, and Carl, just so you know, I sent in Merriam-Webster's dictionary's definition of swilling, and he was sending me a Google definition of swilling and you know sources right i mean uh, you know at, at one point and i respected this about you richard i really did at one point you were just like listen i i didn't write the title i didn't necessarily want the title but this is taking up too much of my time at this point i don't care and i need to move on to other things <laughs> and i was like oh, okay that's pretty awesome yeah i, I, nice. I, I totally i'll take it up with i i which it, we did and they changed it to bourbon drinking or whatever yeah yeah yeah, I just loved at a certain point you're like, okay, I'm gonna go back and forth with you three times and we'll send each other links of what swilling <laughs> means and and then I'm gonna be done with it because I have a job and I've gotta go do it. <laughs> yeah. You're not the you're not the only person to have complained about a headline. Some with justification, some with without in, in my career. And you're right that at some point I just turn it over to the editor and say, This is your job, <laughs> you know. Deal with it. Yeah, I was, which is fair. I, yeah. was, I was I was not used to s uh, somebody that was writing an article because I've had a few done being as thorough. Like this guy called my high school football coach. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and teachers, right? Who I think were less complimentary than you actually put in the article, but <laughs> still, it was the thoroughness no, of doing it. They were pretty good, and you know, if you want to understand somebody i have my theory here on profiles is you've got to get to somebody before you get, get a feel for them in high school or college if you can get the college roommate or the one across the hall you're going to find you may find out you know something that's making them tick there and either good or bad and and so just Finding that, and the thing is, we get older, it becomes more and more difficult to track those people down. Certainly, professors begin begin to pass on. Roommates don't remember you. Girlfriends. Yeah, you time. My coach died last year. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I was sorry, too. I actually went back to Michigan for his services. But it, it I think you're right. And it, it strikes me as you're talking about this, that... I'm just thinking to myself, man, you'd have made a pretty good short seller. I mean, because that's that's one of the things that we do that's differentiated, right? I mean, I remember one of the first reports we ever wrote was on Sino Clean Energy. And the law firm that sued us absolutely freaked out that we included in our report that we spoke to a store clerk outside the factory. And that kind of comes back from my upbringing of, you know, General Motors factories in Flint the people who knew most about what was going on the factory floor were the businesses servicing it. And mm -hmm. you've got to, you've got to think out of the box. And for you to say, 
you know, okay, I can talk to somebody's colleagues that they work with now, somebody's peers that they work with now. You're basically going to get the group think of who that person is now. Going back to who they were 30 years ago does get to the root of the problem. Yeah. Or, you know, that's where the genius first, you know, uh, showed itself. Well, in my you case, know. root of the problem. <laughs> root of the problem. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, and it, it actually is fun. And it has sort of a, a there's a sleuthing element yeah, to it. I bet. Tracking down their, I mean, and there are people that, that are better than this with, uh, with this than I am, but uh, getting, you know, tracking down that person. I, I do draw some lines. I don't talk, I tend not to talk to children or ex-wives. Although I did quote one ex-wife, but it was only, it was very complimentary of the, the person. So that was... Uh, yeah, ex-wives but, you know. tend to have a, um, maybe a... Large ex. Yeah, maybe. Or an ex-husband or... Yeah, yeah. Know, non-gender binary past mate. Partner. Life, We're just going to say partner. it all correctly now. Life I, partner. I, I, I go through the entire day trying not to offend somebody in this way. <laughs> On that subject, when you've done this in the past, have you ever like found when you're doing background on somebody kind of deep background from 20 years earlier, a real nugget? You're like, wow, this really just made it all worthwhile. Um, I'm wondering how honest to be with you that. Well, yes. I mean, just, just really kind of honest would be fine. Uh, well, no. Okay. Cause the, the, there is, I mean, look, if there's something you're not comfortable with, we can come back and take it out. Well, well, no, no, I've, I've, no, no, it's, it's just simply this, that, uh, I mean, there, there, there are a couple things, you know, I've discovered medical conditions, which I don't think is necessarily pertinent. Uh, I've found uh, children uh, that had, that were, um, I don't want, I'd say psychological problems uh, that I didn't want to include, even if they, it was pertinent, you know, on the other hand, I've also found people, you know, you know, uh, you know, sadly I've, I've, uh, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't hidden in any way, shape or form, but you know, uh, a hedge fund manager who had lost two of his children who had died and I didn't know whether to include it, but I realized that that was one of his motivating factors. Uh, very, you know, it's sad. A yeah, person went on some great success. How, how did he feel about you including it? Oh, no, he confronted it very. Uh, um, I, I swallowed hard when I asked him the question as to how important, and he grimaced and said, yes, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And that's all I needed to ask. Move on from there. So, you know, I can, I can see from you discussing this, that when you had to go to this individual and ask him that question, it, you did swallow hard. You seem a little emotional about it yourself. Like, you know, you just, the kid thing is a real hard and fast rule with you. It seems like. Yeah, it is. Unless the, you know, unless they're in prison, you know, I, I guess. And it should be a matter of, and if it's a matter of public record, which I think in this case it was, so it was not like I was, I'd, I'd been found, finding, snooping around his garbage, the, the, the guy's garbage or hurt stuff, you know, it was, it was. Uh, 
That's overrated, by the way. Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends on who's garbage, I suppose. Everybody thinks that that's that that's a major technique. It's 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 really not that I know of. Not since the who's a really interesting guy, Kurt Feshback. Yes. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, back back with the Feshback brothers in the '80s, you kind of maybe had to dig through garbage sure. a little bit. But nobody really digging through garbage now involves like probably hacking somebody. So that's you know the right. And also, I mean, the, the, by the way, isn't uh, I, the, the legal? What what, what, what the, there's legalisms around that that I don't. I think there I'm, are now more than there were in the eighties. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really know the legalisms around it. I think it's also by state, but I don't do it, so I don't. I've never really had to find out whether that's legal or not. I, I know exactly what state you can surreptitiously record a conversation. New York. Yes. yes. <laughs> New York, New Jersey. Yes, you can do that. Uh, Pennsylvania, not so much. It's, it, it's, it's not necessarily surreptitious. It's just, are you d disclosing this? Uh, I think most journalistic organizations will say that you're supposed to inform the person. I think unless you're planning on broadcasting it, I'm, I'm not that, uh, I don't think full disclosure on that really. I don't know how much that is implemented. Well, I'm, I'm always planning on broadcasting it. So, and, and what I don't, <laughs> okay. well, we don't yeah, tell but people you're... it's surreptitious, uh, <laughs> according <laughs> to Pennsylvania anyway, which is why we, you know, have to go to another state when, and if that's a necessary thing to do, or somebody in my organization in another state will do it. Even something as small as that can really just derail you if you're not following all the rules. Right. I, th I think you get more leeway as a journalist, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and when you're speaking to a journalist, if you're not assuming you're always on the record, you're just a moron. You're a moron. <laughs> I, I will say that most journalists I've ever spoke to really consider sacrosanct the off-the-record now we're off the record and, and you guys really don't go beyond that when you're off the record. But if you don't say that you're on the record, correct? Yeah, that's, that's it. You're, you're on the record and no blurting out something incredibly witty and telling and then saying that's off the record. No, that does not work. Sorry. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That does not work. And uh, they're really unhappy with that. I bet. Has that happened to you? Uh, yeah. Uh, once with, <laughs> of all people, the former uh, CEO of Exxon, his, his line, I asked him whether he was going to sue somebody. I think it was Shell. So are you going to sue Shell? And, uh, and, and, and he said, why not? It's the American way. And which is fine to say, but in as Exxon, it's like, and he had just, they just gotten through the, not just gotten through, but you know, 15 years earlier, they had gotten the gone through the Exxon Valdez. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, no, no, that's on the record. And then, you know, and then, um, oh, and Manuel Asensio, uh, who I believe, don't quote me on this, right? Don't quote me. No, this is just between but, us. Go ahead. Just between us. Uh, no, uh, he, he, he asked to have removed the best quote and I'll read it to you. And it was, um, uh, he had been disbarred by FINRA uh, for 
I really couldn't. It was running uh, a an unlicensed broker dealer, but it wasn't really a broker dealer, and it just went on. And, and basically, he was kind of being stubborn, and uh, you know, and whether he should have been disbarred, I'll leave it up to to, to other people. But he, he made this full fledged. Um, effort to um to have the bar released uh lifted on him and i said well why is this so important to you you don't really need it from a for in your your current position and he said uh he wanted a happy ending i'm interested in clearing my name he also said that uh he needs some kind of victory some sort of redemption and the quote was and is uh, Jesus Christ would be just another dead Jew if he wasn't resurrected, uh, which fits his personality uh, and is actually probably accurate, you know, when you think about it. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, but may not ingratiate you, would not ingratiate you with the. Uh, AD in the Anti-Defamation League or whatever. Or Christians or Jews. <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so, uh, a great quote. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I think the Muslims and the Buddhists are fine with it, but Christians, oh, Jews, it's a Defamation League. No, no he's... Yeah, I've, I've met him a couple of times, and um, I, I've gone back and forth about inviting him onto the show because, gosh, he's just one of the original gangsters when it comes to short selling, and that's... That's richly interesting. But what a wild card. And when you mm -hmm. say that, you know, you got barred from FINRA or whatever, I mean, profanity warning coming up. You know, as I understand it from Leak, even speaking to him, I mean, he walked into a, a FINRA hearing and just motherfucked everybody in there. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the lead of my chapters, like him refusing to shake the hands of the FINRA investigator, laughing at him. I mean, really cursing them out. I mean, he really cursed people out in there. And uh, I, I mean, cool. Uh, as, as far as the story, go, for, from what he told me, and I, and I believe it, but don't expect to get your license back. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, and maybe that that's worth it to him. I, I suspect, uh, well, I guess not. Cause he wants it back. I mean, to the point to where, you know, they were, they originally, they were in talks about doing a TV series kind of. Yes. HBO. Him. Yes. Yes. I interviewed, you know, who was going to play him? John Leguizamo. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. so, so this, I mean, bless the guy for telling me, he says, well, yeah, you ought to talk to uh, John Leguizamo. He's going to play me uh, in HBO. So he gives me his phone number yeah. and, and I call, I call the phone number and I go, is this John Leguizamo? And he goes, yeah. And I go, um, well, look, uh, Manuel, I'm doing an article on, uh, I'm doing a book on short sellers and there's a chapter on Manuel Asensio. And he's, uh, so he gave me your phone number. What had happened was they had agreed, they'd, they'd gotten a screenplay, yeah. they'd hired people, they're ready to roll. Yeah. The guy had sat and had been hanging around with, 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 with Manuel in his office to learn that. And then Manuel said, uh, well, I'm not going to go forward unless the CEO of Time Warner or whoever it is intervenes with FINRA, the, with FINRA yeah. to have me reinstated. And so they scrapped the whole thing. So I call up John, but he didn't tell me any of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I call up John Leguizamo. He said, yeah, I'm a, 
he gave me kind of like as a character reference for you. And then the, the response was, uh, he did. <laughs> it speaks really? to the, it speaks to the bizarre magical realist view he has towards the world. He wasted two years of my life. Manuel Asensio is a deeply disturbed individual. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I, I, that's just somebody's, that's just one person's opinion. And I'm, I don't weigh well, in. Well, it's John Leguizamo's opinion in all fairness. And he was, <laughs> you know, by all accounts, including Manuel's, he, he, he was vested very much so into playing this character, even though he's, you know, like a foot shorter. I guess that doesn't matter in Hollywood. But, you know, I talked to Manuel after all of this and even after the book and he's all, you know, John and I are like brothers, you know, we're, you know, we're so close. I can call him right now. And I'm like, no, please don't. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I don't, you know, there's, you know, we're, we're in a Panera and the screaming and yelling that you've already done in this place is, is well enough. Yeah. I mean, the literally the balls to say, okay, everything's greenlit, got it through HBO, got it all written, got an A-list actor, certainly at the time, mm -hmm. uh, to play me. Now I need uh, somebody to call Time Warner CEO and have him intervene with FINRA. <laughs> yeah, which is a little bit out of left field when you think, you think about it. Yeah. Magical <laughs> realism, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but, you know. And look, not completely unusual for a short seller. I mean, a yeah. lot, most guys are like this, believe it or not, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, maybe most. uh uh, I tried to, you know, I, I have to be, I won't mention the names of a, there are a lot of people that I talked to who are off the record that I visited with. And, and that was fine. I learned a lot. Some of them are, are out of business now. Uh, you know, it's been a long time since the, since the book, it would, they would, they would have different takes on things. And, uh, uh, and, uh, but as I said, there, there are also just some supremely really rational uh, even-headed people who, um, you know, I, I would think that this, this redounds to their benefit in investing because, you know, keeping, keeping, not having blinders on and being measured in your investment policies, not everything's going to go to a zero, right. um, yeah. uh, as, as we've learned not everybody that ever bought a stock in the company should go to jail if, if they're a fraud. I mean, this is like it, it, the ridiculousness of it, of it at some time. And I think yeah. what you're saying is that, and, and I agree, this speaks to the longevity of who can remain a short seller over the long period, like a Chanos or a Carson or whoever, rather than some of, some of these people that are just so convicted that they're right, that they blow themselves up or they're fun. Yep. Yep, uh, the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain sol solvent. And, 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 you know, the other thing is, uh, I probably didn't, I mentioned this happening, but it happens a lot. You know, all it takes is some dumb CEO to come in and say, you know, I'm going to buy that company that you've shorted, and then you're sunk. And they got, and like Malincrop. I mean, that, that happened with, with Malincrop when they were purchased. Autonomy was bought by HP. And I think that is that still winding its way through court? I, I don't I don't follow it. I mean, like, listen, the trade's gone. I don't I've got a yeah, yeah, no, play, but like you're you're a hundred percent right. You know, there have been many a frauds that have been bought out at a 
at a valuation higher than your short, and then you're just screwed, especially if you have a really large position there. So that can happen. Having uh, different financial instruments like credit default swaps or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that'll fuck you up if they go out of business and has. So it, it definitely happens to short sellers from time to time. And that does, again, speak to the longevity of how you can stay in this business or not. I mean, I, this, this was an, an interesting point. Uh, back in the 80s, I forget what year it was, uh, David Tice came out on GE. I think it was 86. It was that long ago saying this accounting, and I can't remember the specifics, but he went through their, their, their accounting and what they were doing with GE Capital is my recollection. My recollection that was 1986. So Jack Welsh had recently gotten in there. He was something else with that accounting, wasn't he? And just yeah, and he he, he, he he actually there's a there's a Fortune magazine article from the from the 90s with Carol Loomis, I believe, where Jack Welsh said, "Yes, of course we manage earnings. Our our investors deserve it. They need smooth earnings. You know." Right. And I, I and I read that and read it again, and I was like, uh, "No, <laughs> that's uh, that's earnings manipulation, right? Is yeah. that?" Uh... I would think Jeffrey Immelt would 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 have agreed once he took over and had to deal with that. And look, I think he kind of managed it the same way, and then they could only kick that can down the road so far. Yeah, but look how long it took before the yeah. proverbial manure hit the fan. Well, it's probably a microcosm for you know our national debt and how the corporation of the United States is being run. <laughs> yes, maybe. I don't know. You're getting above my pay grade. <laughs> oh, believe me, I'm above mine. In a way, would, would that have been the, call it the birth of adjusted EBITDA? No. No? Me. It wasn't the birth of adjusted. No, earnings. that that was the, the adjusted earning. They had their own special. They created their own accounting. It had this strange name, which I just remember talking to the, the very pleasant public relations and investor relations people at GE as they tried to explain it to me, and I'm not sure they really understood it. Uh, how they were? It was like that's not unusual. Capital profits or something strange like that. I. I uh, I should brush up on, on, on that particular one. Yeah. Well, it wasn't the birth of the quote unquote adjusted. I mean, you know, Carl's point is at least tangential to yours. Whenever a company is making up their own accounting terms to describe their financial picture, that's a problem. And yeah, the adjusted part of whether it's earnings or EBITDA or any kind of multiple, that a company makes up that backs out all of these charges that benefit management. It's been a pervasive problem in the market for the past at least 20 or 30 years and continues to be. Real earnings, real gap, real accounting is and should be what matters. Don't you agree? Yeah, I'm, I am not entirely sure in how many instances 
adjusted using adjusted and non-GAAP earnings really helps anybody. Uh, maybe you can come up with examples. I, I'm, I'm sure there must be some where it does shine some light, but I don't really, they don't come to mind it just to me. investors. I mean, of course, it helps the company. It doesn't help the end investor, in my mind, unless they they sell before gap catches up with adjusted and you know you look at gtt from 2019 i believe is when we wrote on them and it was all of their adjusted kind of metrics that hid the fact that their roll-ups they were overpaying for and they couldn't sustain it and now they're bankrupt and that, mm -hmm. that happens over and over and over again and that that must be something that that falls on you to write about from time to time is like, you know, especially because I guess some of what you do would be a postmortem. You don't know what happened until it happened. And then you're writing about it. Yeah. And sometimes you don't know what happened even after it happened. And oh, after, and when you're writing about it and you're kind of, you know, you, you want to be clear that I don't think this is going to happen. I, I don't, sh I'm not sure that this is what actually happened but here's a scenario and oh can i hang it on to some analyst that i rope in and say hey does this sound reasonable good i'll attribute it to you you talk um, to, you talk to investment bank analysts from time to time oh yeah yeah i can uh, and do uh i find that they are across the board uh i i, I want to know what other people are thinking i want to there's also a baseline of of information that uh they that you can learn from them uh, the baseline about how to approach an industry uh not not the buy sell you know obviously uh and you know one of the things you see is and the china situation is is a great example of this is you put it out there you say uh it's amazing one of the evergreen stories of uh, th this decade is having to remind people that when you buy Alibaba stock, BABA, you're not buying shares in Alibaba as we know it, uh, right? You put out a tweet like that today. That yeah, was, yeah yes. you, you know, this is, well, you know, it's, a, but I was like, oh, this has been going on for, for ages now. You're buying into a variable interest entity and it's like, and nobody, you know, and it's, you, you need, it's nice to hear, like I didn't know that Yum China was not did not use a VIE v, v, e structure, and that's kind of oh yeah I was reading this report oh they mentioned that that's interesting for me to know I'm not writing about it I'm not investing in in Yum China but that's kind of something I keep there in the back of my head, uh, and uh, but you know with the China stuff it's amazing how many people with uh, I believe Tal education. And uh, well, that's definitely VIE, yeah, that's a VIE, but they lost like 90% of the value. What was the other one that was uh, EDU? Uh, yeah, yeah, EDU. They lost 90% of their value, and you have re research reports coming out saying this might be a good buy opportunity. Oh, I'm just for like, sure. <laughs> I mean, there's always every short report that comes out has an analyst coming out and saying it's a good buying opportunity. and. You know, with with Tal and EDU in the education sector, and then now now fintech with you know Tencent and and the other fintech names that that have crashed on that.
it's government intervention, which, you know, China doesn't give us any kind of heads up on. I'm, you know, uh, believe me, the people in the know there had a heads up and, and I'm, I'm sure got out or got out of the way or bought puts. But that, that is definitely a problem. And it's not just the VIE structure in and of itself. It's, it's just a kind of a hostile atmosphere between our governments and investing right now that I would think fiduciaries in our business who are mutual funds, index funds, the Black Rocks, MSCI, would really try to hedge their risk. And you're right. They're considering it buying opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you want and- to go back to the short seller in Evergreen, story because you you had the evergreen mic drop there you know andrew left wrote on them 10 years ago and for all of his effort he was banned from trading in hong kong (laughs) and basically what he said 10 years ago is what happened yeah and you can lose a lot of money between now and then you know um, between then and now uh, on this and uh because you can yell in a you can scream in a forest, but if nobody's listening, you know, it's not going to matter. And that's, by the way, the, the other company, you know, AOL, these, you know, the short sellers were all over these companies. Yeah, that was a Chanos thing too. Chanos did that. Uh, um, I think um, the other guy uh, who was big on that, in my recollection, was Doug Cass. Uh, uh, he was he was big on AOL where just simple he found in some filing with AOL Europe that they they were on the hook for billions of dollars that wasn't that nobody kind of knew there was there was a put um and i'm i'm not remembering the specifics of it there was some sort of put option in AOL Europe which required the company to buy it back this unit back and at some outrageous price and, you know, he stumbled on this and it was in a filing, you know, God bless SEC filings. Um, yeah, God bless them. We read enough of them. <laughs> it's uh, they, they definitely are a full departure from the filings you would read about the same company in China. And, and, and I have a feeling back in the 90s, maybe like, yeah, there were different disclosure rules in Europe, which led to AOL's demise or their accounting fraud charges here. And that's what you have to go read the disclosures in every country they're in basically to see how they match or they don't. Mm-hmm, it's a very mm-hmm. difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, um, but uh, you know, th- thinking back on China, um, uh, do, do you have any, uh, I, I know macro is not your, I don't know if that's your specialty. Of I don't yours. know what Do my you... specialty is, Richard. Just go ahead and ask the question. Okay, so you're a generalist, I guess we call you. Uh, uh, do you think the, la- the that's what's going on there in uh, with g- the government uh, cracking down on uh, internet companies, education, going that that there's a little bit of a push? They're pulling back now, having you know. Uh, had this big, um, you know, an explosion in their, uh, in the value of their companies or their, their, their economic growth that now they've reached an inflection point and they're saying maybe this capitalism thing has gone too far. Maybe we're going to start, you know, maybe Mao wasn't so wrong is to, 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 to put a fine point on it. Well, well, hold on before you answer, do we need an off the record? 
<laughs> I'm missing the joke. What's the joke? You know, before you'd say anything to a reporter, you want to qualify it. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Look, to, you know, for me, for one thing, it amazes me that, that people don't take President Xi at his word when he is so true to his word. Mm-hmm. He doesn't necessarily say everything that China ends up doing, but everything he does say that China is going to do, they do. And he has said most of this stuff that, like, yes, you, there will be no cult of personalities here in China. There's not going to be an Elon Musk of China, even though Elon Musk thinks he's Elon Musk of China. <laughs> There's not going to be companies bigger than the state, which is you know, kind of a tenet for a communist society, right? They're, that's why they're kind of anti-religion in, in communism. They don't want God to be above the state. They certainly don't want Tencent or Alibaba to be above the state. Mm-hmm. Playing with the greater macro picture as far as global conflict goes and where the United States and China have diverged and are more diverging, you know, I ask people to kind of picture the fact that, number one, President Xi and almost everybody backing him says they're, they're taking Taiwan. I mean, is it, is it going to be today? No. Is it going to be tomorrow? No. Maybe not this year. But they say they're going to take it, and I, I take him at his word. Imagine what happens to these companies if they're listed on foreign exchanges at the time, to their valuations, and how that affects their market. So pulling them back to Hong Kong, which they now control because they took Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Pulling them back and getting them on a domestic market insulates those companies and their future valuations to a degree when and if there is a greater kind of conflict against Western markets. So I think, you know, when you see these holding foreign Com- company accountable act come out of our Congress, which is a very watered down shitty legislation, but I'll take it. It's a step in the right direction. That would have notionally indicated that in two or three years, companies that don't meet these accounting oversight regulations would be delisted. Well, she's, she's not going to make that the narrative. He's going to make the, the narrative, no, I'm calling them back. <laughs> it's, right. You're not kicking us out. We don't want to be there. But as, as a part of that benefit as well, yeah, where there's a South China Sea conflict, where there's a tr- Straits of Taiwan conflict, it's not good for their biggest companies to be listed on foreign exchanges exclusively. That's my take. Uh, do you think that uh, that uh, the blinked? Did he blink here? You know, he was on course. This was a, a you know a superpower on its way to surpassing the United States in economic and also, you know, to some degree, eventually political and economic and military importance. And now he's saying we're going back to the bad old old days. Did he just make a mistake, do you think, in terms of geopolitical? Um, Look, he has more information than I do. <laughs> so I, I, I think there, uh, there are graveyards littered all over China and the, and the world with people who think, President Xi has made mistakes. He tends to. You mean that literally, don't you? I do mean that literally. Yes. Yes. Okay. He tends to make 
make what are perceived mistakes advantages for his country. And for better or worse, he doesn't have to really worry about political parties criticizing him so much or the media mm -hmm. criticizing him so much or getting reelected every four years in a majority or a minority of, you know, the Politburo, Congress for them. So I, I think he views this as the logical next step to do all the things that you were saying maybe made him blink. I think they, he sees this as something that's going to get them to the world's biggest economy, something that's going to get them to the world's biggest military. They're now a regional superpower with denial of access to anything near their shorelines, right? I mean, without catastrophic loss of life anyway. And they're doing this Belt and Road policy coming into Africa where they're, they're, they're buying up, you know, ports, defaulting mm -hmm. the countries on debts, making them deep water ports, and now they're naval installations, and they're leapfrogging from Africa to South America, and they're going to try and rattle our cage in our hemisphere. And that is exactly the plot and the plan over the next 10 years to, to bring that, if, you, if you're looking at a map, to just kind of bring it down through Africa and then leapfrog off the west of Africa into South America and then boom, we've got to worry about them over here the way they worry about us in the South China Sea. That's what they're doing. Okay. Well, we'll see whether the internal contradictions of the communist system catch up with them before they uh, catch up with China uh, before they are able to reach their goals. I guess that's... Yeah, I, it's it's... Look, it's deeply troubling with the kind of relationship they have with Russia now that they, it's very smart of them to say that like, you know, look, we can, we can open up a Western front vis-a-vis -vis Russia, rattling cages in Ukraine again, Lithuania, Estonia, all those NATO nations that, you know, <laughs> that we should not have included in, in NATO because they're very, very small countries right on the border of Russia that was bound to piss them off. And, you know, with, with Putin starting trouble over there, America can ill afford to be over there helping out Europe and dealing with China if a problem happens. That's just, you know, that's a war on two fronts, right? That didn't work out well for Germany. And I think that's part of the plan, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But no, this is you interviewing me. I see, uh, see, yes. how, see how you did that? Huh? <laughs> I see how you did that. Yeah, sneaky guy. Force of habit. What I can guess. I tell you? What's what's on tap for you, Richard? What are you doing next? Are you you're just going to continue to write about boring people like you know short sellers and uh, investment managers or? Well, you, uh, um, actually, I'm thinking of starting world? my own my own podcast and maybe oh. a short selling for teasing, teasing, teasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody's got jokes. Jokes. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not. Work. Look who's trying to be funny. <laughs> Look, there's there there's a lot. You know, I I see holes in journalism and what's being covered that I would like to uh, fill 
It's uh, unfortunately the traditional, a, a lot of the- He wants to fill. Jeez, oh, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, you filthy minded. Uh, this is a family program. Hashtag me yeah. too. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. There are swaths of the economy uh, and political scene that I don't think are being well covered. Yeah, uh, despite some 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 excellent you know, look, there's great journalism out there. But you know, I remember where when you had to look over your shoulder every moment to what. Uh, you know what the different competition was doing whether it be the wall street journal the bloomberg new york times wash wash post uh ft and i'm not seeing those kind of breaking investigative stories with a couple of notable exceptions you know um theranos was was a great one but you know that was started five years ago you know you know why that happened in the media rather than in the markets because they weren't publicly traded we were dying for that company to ever go public. Right. Yeah. Same, same thing with WeWork. And both those companies were so bad that you just couldn't keep the chatter down. And I, I'm really glad, quite frankly, that, that both those companies were exposed before they went public. Because, like, I mean... Yeah, you know, for think the of all the people. Shackles, that's the, yeah, exactly. Just think of the widows and orphans, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, or just. Agreed. The people that are there, um, I, I was, who was it? Oh, I guess it was Carlson. Uh, it was um, Carson Plough. Who was, who was say, stop for a moment. And, you know, he was talking about his, his hate mail uh, and th that he was getting. And it's like, you know, and how that, that annoy, upset him. And then he said, you know, no, these aren't the bad guys. These are the guys that bet their money trying to make back whatever they lost, you know, from the financial crisis to, to last year's sell off, you know, they're just trying to. And those are the, those are the people we're getting letters from. Yeah. The, yeah. Not the, from, I mean, listen, you know, it, you know, you're ruining people's lives. You're a financial terrorist and I hope you rot in hell. Love mom. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are the letters. I mean, they're from, your neighbors and your family, I mean, regular people who just don't really understand what's going on and you have to be wrong because if you are wrong, then they'll make money. They would, I've said this unfortunately over and over again for the last 10 or 12 years, what I found being involved in the markets in the way I am is that the vast majority of Americans would rather make money on a fraud than lose money on the truth. Yeah, that's that's problematic, actually, uh, when you think about it, uh, because frauds eventually no, there are only a couple of people who make money off the frauds and those are the fraudsters. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, um, so you also said you're going to you see a, a hole to fill in political reporting. <laughs> um, I, I, I see that fraught with peril. I mean, I, I have ooh, to say, Richard, yeah. I've. Spent a couple of days with you, right? When when you're doing your story, and I I talked to you in the past a little bit. I still, yeah, and kudos to you for like I'm still not quite sure where you lean. I mean, I think you lean left, but you're you definitely don't wear it on your sleeve like some do. Do you think you could you could write evenly between the right and the left, or do you think you would just you would have too much of a bias, which is where I think uh, the problem is. To def define right and left, um, please. I because because no, I mean there, there there's a difference between 
um, the traditional uh, right wing, small government, limited, uh, uh, keep the deficit down, right. uh, uh, laissez-faire approach. I may disagree with that, but it's it's not unethical, certainly, and there's a lot of good reasons. And there is, uh, and then there's uh, the part of the. Um, why, why am I mincing my words here? There, there are parts of the of, of the of the uh, uh, the Trumpist aspects of the Republican Party that have no interest in the in, in the truth. And I don't feel like I, I, I don't think we're pulling your punches and and doing the, you know, you know, guess what? Sometimes it is black and white, you know, and either uh, either the president, either those presidential tax returns are accurate or they're not accurate. Yeah. Either um, you're going to release them or you're not. Are you going to release them or not? It's not, you know, and then you can say, well, there's no constitution. Well, um, if they're, they should be published. And I am a big believer in the first amendment and what the, uh, what gets, uh, what you find and what you do through your journal, uh, that, that should, the results of your journalism should be publicized. And you, if somebody wants to sue you and, uh, and they do. That's that's one thing, but uh, I also think that maybe, and I know this is controversial in certain circumstances, uh, the court, uh, the cost of the court should be taken up by the losing side in a situation like that. Uh, I would be fine with that. I've won every single time, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't get anything for it. But you, uh, you, you, you kind of fell into your. Just, just in my view of hearing what you just said, I mean, like you say, what's the difference between the right and the left? Define the right or the left is, I think, what you said. You know, the right is, you know, at, unfortunately at this point, somebody that gets, you know, um, sexually aroused when they hear Donald Trump speak, and the left is somebody that gets aroused when they hear AOC speak. You know, I mean, it's just like these cult of personalities, and um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's back to what you were saying. Like, you know, there was that oath old ethos of smaller government, smaller regulation, paying off debt might've been a more conservative point of view where hawkish, hawkish foreign policy generally. Yes. Right. Right. They, they, they could not, uh, you know, I mean the, the Republican party and that, that has been elected anyway over the last 10 or 15 years could not credibly make that point anymore about smaller government and debt and things of that nature. They've been just as bad. And then there's, you know, the left where, I mean, now we're talking about debt on an epic scale and, and we really want to want to run things from babysitting on up. So it's these extremes. And do you think, you're yes, I, 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 I don't disagree with you. Um, uh, I, I think that some of the, um, some of the language that you're hearing from the squad in particular, uh, uh, some of it is nonsensical the, uh, and, and just plain wrong uh, concerning Medicare for all, uh, which is maybe a great idea in, 
in theory, but the cost of $31 trillion over 10 years is prohibitive. And no, saying that that you can pay for it with Defense Department accounting adjustments, no, that's just wrong. And you should be called out on that. Not the least Uh, of which the Defense Department doesn't do accounting. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, was that, I, I didn't even think of it that way. But yeah. uh, but in any case, the, 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 the alleged fraud in the Defense Department, that was one of the things that was brought up, just basic, simple accounting, mathematics, not accounting, you know. And people should be alert to that because you're having, while you have a threat to the Republic from the from the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, which seems to be all, most of it at this stage. Oh, don't say that. Uh, well, it, it, it seems to be. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm talking about the people in 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 Congress. Maybe, yeah. Um, you know, I, I will say this, Rich. It's, it's probably the same, and I think it applies on both sides. It's the same eight, ten clowns on, on both sides, and being moderate or centrist or what I would call normal um, doesn't sell. It's not sexy. It doesn't have a great story. It's it's you know the hard left all oh, defund the police. Well, then you talk to the people in the areas where they defund the police and be like, hell no, give us more cops. And then the people who are the percentage of people who are the the mouth breathing Trumpers, I don't necessarily think they're all about Trump. It's more about the well, f you to the to to the other side because this is what you've tried to push through. And there's no good, great story about do your thing, let me hang out and do my thing, and I don't care. Says the mouth-breathing Trumper. <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> no. no. Uh, well, 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 look, okay, let, let me bring up my son again. Um, when the Black Lives Matter demonstrations began, uh, we were back, back, we were in the city uh, in June, I believe, and they were ramping up and he wanted to attend them. And I... You know, I said to him, uh, well, just two things that you should, um, three things. Uh, I still want you to wear a mask, uh, although that didn't appear to be necessary. Uh, Number two, um, they will begin chanting things that you don't agree with. And people will use those as slogans. Just be aware of that. You don't have to chant. And then um, I said, and uh, not to be a, a daddy downer, but this happens every 20 years, you know, going, you know, you can go back to civil rights. It can go back to your, your late grandfather who covered, uh, who was Montgomery uh, bureau chief, Alabama bureau chief for international news service. This happens every 20 years. And then there's a big hullabaloo and then nothing changes. So I'm just going to tell you that. And I'm not happy about that. But but, but getting back to your point, you know, there is this, this um, I, I think you're right um, uh, concerning the squad uh, who have gotten all this, who, who've gotten a disproportionate amount of attention um, because they're loud. Uh, because that's the tenor of the times, and that that will actually redound to damage uh, the Democratic Party and steer us back to some sort of 
normalcy, if I'm going to say it, you know, he, he, he uh, it that's going to be a problem. He gave it away there. He said, steer us, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Democrat, mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that for my entire career, <laughs> my, my entire career, my t- uh, from uh, from when I was voting age to this year, I was not a member of a political party. Yeah, congratulations. Congratulations. Not that that makes a difference since you've come out on our show. Congratulations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, I think you gave your son. Uh, by the way, I'm just going to have to correct. I, I just don't want to leave the wrong impression there. Oh, everybody knows I, I'm joking. I mean, oh, listen, no, no, no. I just, I just want to know. I, I, I did join the Democratic Party uh, this year for the mayoral elections because I was worried in New York City. But de Blasio because, would be reelected and you didn't want that? I wanted to write him in. That was the key You wanted part. to write in de Blasio? You, you, you actually can't because he, his term his limits term, were, were over. You, you want de Blasio for another term? I'm going to jump out my window. <laughs> yeah, it was de Blasio. I love that guy. Oh, my no. God. Uh, uh, no, no, but the, the, there were several there were ser- several candidates that I didn't want, uh, I didn't think would make good mayors. Did you like the, um, I forget his name, the uh, former police officer who won the one? Eric Adams. Eric Adams. Yeah, I think I, I like well, him. I, well, well so actually, I like uh, him. What, what's what's nice was that you could choose however many. What is it? Five. Yeah, they have people, the tier, you know, tiered, so you, uh, tiered so, so you could actually go and pick the ones that you liked most, but you knew weren't going to win, and then you know, you know, put them down and just you know. So look, I understand what you did, and you know, I I think part of our problem in this country are uh, closed primaries. I, I, I wish they were all open, actually, because what I've said to people, I mean, uh, you know, you know, Jed, you know, the, the director of yeah. the China Hustle, good guy. But he just says over and over again, the Republican Party needs to be burned to the ground. And um, it's like, OK, not helpful. The only thing more dangerous to a country than a two party re- republic is a one party republic. Mm-hmm. So you can't really burn one of them to the ground. But if you really want to change a party, join it. And then you can vote in primaries and you can have more of a say of what's going on there than being a part of a party that you already agree with. Try and bring them both to the center. And nobody seems to really like that idea. You know, I don't. Tribalism, right? I, I, well, I you, you know, you're absolutely right that the way our our system is constructed, you need to political parties. Oh, you it need three or four. We only have two. Well, but yeah, but the represent the, the way that our democracy works is the, the, the third party gets gets kind of And the two parties in power make sure that you're not going to have a third party. Yeah. They've made it so onerous for any kind of defined, yeah, there's independent, there's libertarian. I mean, who knows what any of those things mean? Independent means nothing, so nebulous. Libertarian means you can drink Drano on the side of a street. I, I don't know. But there's no real centrist kind of party that could pop up now because it's so hard to to get those parties on every ballot in every state voted in, blah, blah, blah. So it, it, it is a very difficult thing. And we're all, you know, for those of us stuck in the middle, we're, we're stuck in the middle. And we'll just do what we can to put our finger in the dike. Why does it make you watch laugh? it? Watch it. That just, that's a, hey, that's a saying. Stop filling holes with things. That's a saying, dummy. So, 
I would love to. I'd love to see you write about politics. I don't know that I've seen that with you. So, I think you were the closest, and you saw how that turned out. <laughs> Swill it. I, Swill. I take it back. I don't think I want to see you writing about politics. No, I mean, I, by the way, when I say politics, there's 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 a huge intersection with money and politics. You think? Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, no independent uh, Fed anymore. <laughs> The uh, hold on, in the, well, hold on a second. I've, I've done a fair number of pieces on the the New York on on the Federal Reserve System. And, Is that you know, back I, when they were kind of quasi independent as opposed to now? Uh, well, do you think? Uh, well, hold on, hold on. Let me back up there because I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Uh, I, I was not a, a big fan of. Uh, I wasn't. A, a part partisan against Jerome uh, Powell, but you know, didn't he just save uh, the world financial system uh, last year? Oh, I thought that was Geithner. Boy, we—I yeah. mean, like we—they're all saving the financial system, aren't they? Anything, <laughs> anything that doesn't actually destroy the financial system gets our Fed chair anointed as the person who saved it. That I mean, that's that's where we are on the precipice for these last ten or twelve years. Every successive Fed chair has saved the financial system. No, I our financial system's in in, in desperate peril. Thirty trillion dollars in debt? Are you kidding me? I mean, if our if our interest rate was three percent, our our debt service would be nine hundred billion dollars a year. That's more than we spend on the military. Mm, it's it's not three percent though. It's, it, the rates aren't at three percent. This is the time buy low, sell high. Uh, okay. You know, sell sell now, and you know when we're when it's one percent. You know, I'm not one percent forever. And you know what? You know my people's grandparents that are in their eighties don't really need to be so invested in the stock market, but they can't do anything else because mm-hmm. they can't get 3% interest in a bank account or a CD anymore like they used to and have safe money. So everything is at risk. So yeah, it does matter that we can't have interest rates at a, what I would consider a normalized level, non-zero or thereof, because we have so much debt that we can't service it. And for all you ignoramuses who think, oh, okay, we just won't pay back China, they only have less than a trillion dollars of that debt. The Fed owes itself like nine, 10, 11 billion dollars, I mean, trillion dollars of that debt. The others, unfunded pensions and liabilities of ours. So when we're not paying somebody back, look at yourself. You're the somebody not getting paid back. That's why it matters. Okay, uh, but but I'd say if you're going to run up debt in a, a uh, in a crisis situation, which I think last year we would say that you know the pro- that last year the COVID nineteen pandemic w- was a crisis situation. Sure, that's why you you shouldn't be twenty trillion dollars in debt before a crisis happens, so that you can. You can deal with we the were, crisis. We were, we, it's absolutely right that that, that that's a, uh, a leftover from the last crisis. But but the, the, the pandemic was a, a artificially created, and the, our GDP coming out of it should have been through the roof. What we two point eight, two point nine percent. What do you mean by artificially created? Because we manually, we forced everyone to shut, shut down. down the economy. We shut well, down the economy. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Okay, like, I mean, you know, nobody knew how bad this could get 
until and, and and you know we didn't get a lot of great information out of the past administration in the early stages of this pandemic right it it's not a problem you don't need a mask it is a problem you do need a mask it, so like being cautious about a pandemic is probably the prudent thing to do but the point is that you you should have a balanced budget and you should have a low rate of debt so that when you do right or wrong when you do these things you can afford to do them and and be able to pay it back off but the, we we've taken 20 trillion and turned it into 30 trillion yeah and you know look you know obama administration probably put a third of that on there and then you know trump criticized the hell out of him while he was campaigning about debt and then he did the exact same thing and you know now we are where you we know, are. Our, our election cycles are such that you know nobody is left uh, the, the America is left holding the bag, uh, yeah. and the the electoral consequences for bad decisions really fall onto the next, maybe even not the next president, but the president after that. Well, so the, the, the last the, four presidents should have something on their desk that says the buck does not stop here. <laughs> that's a good idea. I like that. Does does Joe Biden have one of the, the buck stops here? I I mean, you could ask him. I don't know if he'd remember. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he said it. But come on, man. I, you know, it's you know, it's still early with him. You know, I I I, I hope it goes well. I hope. As I so root for every president we have. I I really do. I mean, like I mean to. I disagree with them. You know, often, but it doesn't mean I want them to fail tomorrow. I mean, that's that's wanting our country to fail tomorrow. So you just you, you just hope things get back on track. But I, I have seen that since maybe George H.W. that nobody's been willing to take a bullet, right? Where H.W. said, read my lips, you know, no new taxes. And then we had Desert Storm and the Kuwait invasion and a war over it. And you know, the guy says, okay, listen, we had a war. We got to pay for it. So we're going to have to raise taxes. And that really cost him. Yeah, that cost him the election, I think. But the recession really helped as well, you know, so. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. You, you raise taxes and things like that can happen. And and interest rates go up and, and oil prices and all that stuff. But I think Clinton benefited from, from him you know, saying the buck stops here. And I don't know that it's really kind of happened since. And, you know, you could put it on Congress, too. I mean, the obstructionist, I, I push back that the real obstructionist part of Congress came in with Gingrich. Well, he, he was the he pioneered it. It was just and then he hurt and then it redounded to to, to bite him, which, um, you know, his. Um, Stonewalling, if you would, uh, and obstinacy, and then Clinton came back. And I'm sorry, I'm just forgetting the uh, when Clinton won re-election. You know that was dull. Well, that was part of a that was a function of that. Um, but um, yeah, the, you know. But getting I, back, I, well, to I'd love to see you write about this. I think, I think you're. I'm, I'm going to send you a list. I'd like to see you write about <laughs> AOC. Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine yourself like requesting to do an article on her? Could it, could it happen? 
you're both New Yorkers. Well, 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 maybe not with institutional investor, but you know, I'm, I, I uh, I'm a free agent. Yeah. So, so, so that's out there. And, and frankly, sometimes, uh, I think, um, you know, there, there is stuff that should be written. I, I mean, I'm, I'm always been fascinated by her, the, the donors to her, her campaign pack, uh, you know, being mostly from, uh, uh, from, um, tech companies or largely, and, uh, which is ironic. It's, it's, you know, the, uh, Amazon, Apple, these guys, and you know, she, She's not, uh, but she accepts the money, and that—that's okay. I mean, I'm, yeah, I understand she that has still. to, though. I, I think she's drawing the line of drug companies, anyway, isn't she? I don't—I don't know the answer to that, but I mean, she says she is. Oh, she—she—she she, she did. She's. Uh, I see. This is why I have to research this. I, I, I know Hillary didn't. <laughs> <laughs> On a serious note, I do have somebody uh, I would like an in-depth Richard Teitelbaum interview on because I think he's done some good and I think he's an asshole at times, but there's a lot of good happening there with Dave Portnoy and Barstool Sports. Okay. And and getting in the Davey Day Trader. So there's that financial angle, but like, I mean, it's pretty famously, he and I have disagreed on a few things, but you know, to go out there and help small business during the pandemic and put your money where your mouth is and yeah. to care that way. Uh, but yet at the same time to be somebody who's like the original uncancelable. you know, if you, if you research that, some of the things he's said, Oh yeah. Would get any human being on the planet canceled and, and he's able to just not let that happen. I think it would be an interesting story for you. The way you long form, right. So try that. Yeah, it takes me a thousand words to clear my throat. As, 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 as my editor once said, like, you know, Richard, you're not getting paid by the word on this one. And I said, I got to change that. It's funny because I started to read through your book in anticipation of the podcast. And there was one part in the book you were like, this six foot two, 260 pound man lumbered after her like a bear chasing. And I was just like picturing a bear just running after a, a, a woman. <laughs> That's just like one Fabio novel too many, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so anything else from Richard that's going to tantalize us to uh, find your future columns? You're still going to be almost exclusively with I.I.? You know, as I said, it's it's uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's you know, and I'm watching uh, former colleagues of mine as they leave uh, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, moving to Substack. They are there, there's new or and and other outlets. Uh, so you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there. And uh, really, I just got to motivate myself and make sure that uh, that uh, what I'm writing about is fun, accurate, and, you know, moves the needle somewhat. Well, that sounds like a, a good gig if you can get it. How about a future book? Have you got any plans for a future book? I do, sort of. Uh, I am I, I, interested in a, a history of... Um, of activist investing, 
Uh, but the manpower is, I mean, I'm, I'm having sketched out an outline, the, 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 man, the man hours that will go into that will be off the charts. Uh, and, uh, Are you talking about like a historical point of view from it would be a, kind of a history. to where it is now? Yeah, uh, but I'd like to get the, 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 the campaigns in there, which are so interesting, uh, and display different tactics and, you know, it's changed over the year and it goes back centuries. Uh, so it has that historical resonance. Yeah, that, is, um, that, is, that, that I, I would love to read that personally, if you get that done. I know it's a lot of man hours, but the, you know, the historical significance of it, that it does go back hundreds of years. And even in the eighties, Carl Icahn was a corporate raider. Now he's an activist investor. You ask him what the difference is. He says, I have a bigger boat. I mean, like, <laughs> what, what, what is the difference? And, and you're not even talking about like activist shorts. You're talking about just like agitating for change on either side of that equation, right? Long or short. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, the short sellers would be part of it, but uh, certainly I think most of it is, is on the long side. And uh, I, I'm also interested. I mean, there is one issue, which is, Hey, do these guys, I know that they, I suspect that on average they make a profit, but what about the companies themselves? Uh, and do they benefit from it? Uh, you know, I would love to talk to Paul Singer about this. I'm sure we'll sit down for a nice long conversation. Uh, well, look, I mean, nothing ventured, <laughs> nothing gained. If there's one thing I could say that I think, I I think you don't like in the that initial phase, like to really bother or badger people into becoming a subject and you probably should uh if uh if you're going to write about something this grand and this big you've got to get the you've got to get the perspective of the paul singers especially if you're if you're posing it as i want your perspective this is not about paul singer this is about paul singer's perspective on activist investing mm -hmm, you got a better mm -hmm. shot there i mean i just i love the idea so much i'm trying to get you to do it the short thing, I don't know. I don't know how interesting that is. I can tell you why they're short activists. There's only two real reasons why short activism is, is, has flowered in the last 20 years. It's one, the fact that everybody now realizes there's no such thing as a real investment bank analyst, right? I mean, they're, they are completely attached to the banking arm. And on any given day, if an analyst just downgrades to a hold, a company's going to call the banking arm and say, we're never going to do business with you again. That just happens every day. Mm -hmm, and two, mm -hmm. the second thing is the death of investigative journalism. As, as, as a big center of news at, at major publications, right? It, it, it's too costly. There's too much litigation involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're, you know, outside of somebody like a Bill Alpert, yeah, I was thinking of Bill Alpert and, uh, but you know, you know, Gretchen Morganson, I don't yeah, see her in, in the journal or the times. And, right. you know, it's, it's a shame too, because if nothing else, it was a great read. That was, was why I wanted to read the New York times right. business section. Right. And you, and you could, you could write about it. There were checks and balances and you as the author, you know, didn't have to be invested to make money. You got, you got a paycheck, right? But for that, you got liability protection. And, you know, now for our business model to work and we have to make money because we've got to defend the lawsuits and we've got to defend the fight that's going to ensue from being critical. 
where you had people like you in investigative journalism 20 years ago had Time Warner or whoever else to protect them. Now they don't. Even, no. even 60 Minutes sucks. <laughs> I have to say I haven't looked at 60 Minutes in quite a while, so well, I can't well, that, weigh in on that. that. Well, you just did. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I remember as a child, even five or six years old, it was a Sunday night tradition to watch 60 Minutes with my father. And in the last 10 years, it is so watered down. I, I had hoped Vice News would kind of take over when they were doing that thing on HBO, that Vice. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were pretty good at going and exposing and doing the undercover. And even they either got me too'd or something happened, but nobody's doing it anymore. Yeah. So that's why there's activist shorts. There's your history. Short. Okay. That's one chapter. That's it. The rest that's one chapter. Okay. Singer. We got it. Okay. I'm on my way. Now find me a publisher and sell my movie rights. Okay. Uh, I don't know how to do that. Uh, <laughs> look, you know, I've always found you a wildly interesting guy. And uh, I think, you should do more of these things and to, to talk about your perspective and your writing, maybe even do podcasts with some of your bigger stories to go along with them, your next profile or whatever. I'd, I'd be happy as long as I'm interested in the person and, uh, and, and the subject to bring your articles to more, to more readers, have a podcast with it or join somebody's podcast with it. Uh, Cause I think, I think you're a really good writer in spite of the fact that, you know, your titles suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I used to say my byline begins underneath the headline. Yeah, okay. Uh, I used to say that when I was at Bloomberg until somebody said, you know, using that line is grounds for immediate dismissal because that would be my standard thing. I didn't write it, and it was always true. I never wrote the headline. And uh, then they and said, you, no, nope. and, and you still don't, as you've, as you've indicated with II institutional investor, but <laughs> I will add this one thing about Bloomberg. I have never, ever met a reporter that liked working there. Oh. Now you've not said either way. I'm just, I'm just kind of reading oh, from it, but I've never met somebody who actually liked the editorial process and dealing with their editor at Bloomberg or, or really working there as a writer. Um, I, I was very fortunate uh, because I was not on the wire service side, because as I said, you know, it takes me a thousand words to clear my throat and a half an hour to write my byline. But I was very fortunate because I was in the ma on the magazine side. So I had at least a month to do a story. And also my editors were old colleagues of mine from Fortune magazine. Uh, so we were kind of off on our own. I miss my colleagues there. Yeah, but didn't they demote you though at Bloomberg? No, they kicked me off the magazine and put me on the billionaires list, uh. which uh, I maintained my title and my pay. Um, and then they fired me uh, <laughs> after that. that that's but a demotion. That's why, a demotion, why, yes. Why, no. why did they fire you, Richard? Did you? Uh, it was... It, it was Come on. <laughs> my personal... Well, okay. So this is opinion and slanted and biased opinion. Uh, I uh, think it was because I wrote a story about the former tre Treasury Secretary saying that he 
had leaked some information on putting Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship to a group of hedge fund managers and other investors before he did that, that he essentially let them know. I wrote that story. You're talking about Geithner. No, this was Hank Paulson. Oh, before, who, who right put before them, that. Yeah, no, he, he, when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into conservatorship, if you remember 2008 in the summer, this question, what's going to go on with them? And it was declining and it was. I, I, just, it, did, I just didn't think that got decided until Geithner got in, but man, I'm, I guess I'm wrong about that. No, no, this was, Geithner was still New York Fed yeah. at that point. And uh, the SEC opened an investigation. It was into the story. It was a front page article in the Wall Street Journal, not Bloomberg. I had moved on to book leave. And then shortly after I returned from book leave, a group of us were fired. And by that point, I was on the billionaires list which I didn't think of as being billionaires is kind of a hybrid between journalism and an educated guess on people's uh, wealth. Lifestyles and, of the rich and shameless. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of it. So I, I found it. Um, so I was fired like within five months of my returning from my book leave when, and shortly after the Wall Street Journal had written the story that the SEC was investigating these hedge fund managers and the uh, and Hank Paulson's actions on that. Uh, I believe that was a August afternoon, and that's just that. Now the other thing is that yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I'm sure I was paid more than most people, but and I was fired along with. A, a gazillion other people at, at Bloomberg that uh, that October. So, can a journalist at Bloomberg, a writer at Bloomberg, make a couple hundred grand a year? It depends on who they are. Uh, so, yes, if you get hired as fresh out of uh, fresh out of high school, uh, fresh out of college. No, no, no. no. I, I, yeah. I mean, top journalists are they are they making a couple hundred grand a year? You're some of them are, I would put it at uh mid uh they, they are in the, the 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 low six figures, couple hundred grand so, so gets a little so bit steep. Grand. That's <laughs> two hundred thousand dollars, the second lowest six figures there is. <laughs> I mean, I, I get on, that too. On even two. there's one and then there's two. <laughs> Yeah, so, in between there, I'd say a seasoned, experienced journalist likely gets paid something in there. So that's that's impactful if you lose that job. I I, yeah. I think that matters. Yeah. That well, you know, as I said, nothing against Bloomberg. I'm on their program from time to time, but I've just the truth is I've never actually met a journalist that you know head to tail enjoyed their experience there and. Uh, Okay. Do you want to say that you've met one? Because I, I did, uh, I, I, I did a lot of important in so, so journalism. The day you got fired in August, you're like, gee, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was actually, I think October. And yes, I, 
I think I knew that the I was at the end of the. Uh, remember, I'd moved from magazine writing yeah, to doing to the these yeah, to yeah. doing these mini profiles of yeah. you know Jim Simons and whoever, and and so I was kind of like you know something if I uh, if it's time to go, it's time to go. Uh, uh, my, uh, unfortunately, my daughter, I have a special needs daughter was in the, uh, and not, I hope this isn't too much information. Maybe you want to, she was in the ICU at the time in oh, oh. intensive care she unit. She's, fi to worry about she, she's fine. Yeah. So I was like, Good. you know, you know something, uh, I'm going to, let me just make sure my, my healthcare insurance is, yeah. is in order yeah. and that of my daughter. And, uh, so, but you can count me as somebody who said that they enjoyed their 10 year career at Bloomberg. Okay. And, I don't you know. know if I believe you, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I'll accept it at face value. How's that? I will. Free I snacks, will, man. What else can I tell I you? Will, you know, you know that they do it right. When you're, when you're doing television at Bloomberg, I will say, I mean, w way better than CNBC or CNN or any of that. You, yeah. You go in there and you get this like massively cool umbrella, you know, with, with Bloomberg on it, like, you know, and I was like, yeah, well, I'll take two. <laughs> and yeah, there's, I mean, they've got kind of a nice open space in there for free thought and whatever their snack areas are pretty cool. They're, they're really kind of more of a Silicon Valley vibe. I would say their office is that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very much has a, the, the key, the key to the success of Bloomberg uh, as much as I like to take credit for it myself it is actually the mathematics and the various analytics that they have in their system, sure. which are indispensable for an enormous swath of, of wall street. And nobody yeah, try as they might, nobody's been able to replicate that. No, I, I, I agree. I've tried. Yeah. I give, I give them that the original business model and the original product is still probably the best that they have. I've tried the others and they're just nowhere near as robust when you actually learn to use, I, I don't know very many people that actually know the full output of a Bloomberg terminal. That's, that's how robust it can be. Right? Yeah. No, there's, there's no way that you could know everything that it does. When I was leaving uh, Bloomberg in my exit, whatever interview or my negotiation, they don't really negotiate. So don't bother. <laughs> Most people um, who fire you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cause you're at a disadvantage there, you know, you're still fired. <laughs> uh, I, I have fired hundreds, if not thousands of people. And in not one case where they had in the advantage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I, I asked for my, um, I said, if I give you back some of my severance, can I, uh, can I have a, a Bloomberg terminal for at least a couple of years? The wow. answer was no, you know, but that was. I mean, if you give back $22,000 a year of your severance, you yeah. can have one. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping I could get like a deal, but yeah, they don't. Uh, well, I mean, I guess if you get a bunch of them, they'll do a deal, but that's, that's kind of a cool story that, Actually, Carl brought out. Congratulations, Carl. That was that was fun, <laughs> and we look forward to having you on. I hope you do join us again when you're writing your next big story and you want to talk about that profile in conjunction with your publishing. That should be fun. AOC. 
That sounds cool. And yes, I'll, I'll get on that AOC story right away. I, I, I definitely think you should. I think more to the point, you should get on your book story and don't let, don't let the massive man hours intimidate you. It's a good idea for a story and just take them one hour at a time. Better than my hagiographic biography of AOC. Okay, okay. All right. So where do we follow you? How do we? How do we? How do we follow you? Do you, you publish everything you uh, write on Twitter? Do you have a website? Uh, I, I, uh, for reasons we we kind of touched on, I I don't do very much Twitter. Uh, I dip into it now and then, uh, but I don't I don't comment if. If I write something, I want to be paid for it. Oh. That makes for very terse birthday greetings from me. <laughs> Happy, Happy birthday, birthday. Yeah. your father, Richard Teitelbaum. You know. <laughs> Happy birthday, love, dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, so I know that's that's short sighted in my own way, but I, I think it also uh, saves me some agitation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, institutional investor uh, is my primary uh, where I am uh, uh, primarily at this stage, and we'll see what what happens. Uh, there, there's a great crew there. Great. And um, so um, this has been a lot of fun. Well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And for those of you that have enjoyed it, you could retweet us. You could hit like. Again, you know. You know from our show, if you didn't enjoy it, I don't really fucking care. So <laughs> don't retweet it. Don't like it. But uh, thanks for joining us anyway. And thank you, Richard, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us.